0: I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Ngunnawal people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present.
1: If you're trying to express a sense of place in a wine, you're trying to sort of encapsulate everything that makes that vineyard unique and interesting, and the wine's therefore unique and interesting, then biodynamics is a way to kind of set some structure around that and say we're not adding fertilizer so the nutrients that go into making the grapes are from that soil not from another farm or from a factory.
0: This is the Over a Glass podcast. I'm Shante Whale. Larkhill Winery is situated high on the escarpment of Bungendore in the Canberra district established in 1978 by Sue and Dave Carpenter. Larkhill has been at the forefront of the region both for thoughtful viticulture and premium wine production. Today we're joined by Chris Carpenter, winemaker at Lark Hill and mountain thrill seeker, to learn more about what's happening in the Canberra district. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining me. Good
1: morning. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, I appreciate the time. I heard that you're quite busy in the winery at the moment, so I appreciate you taking a second away.
1: Uh, yeah. Look, it, it's a lovely kind of point in the winemaking calendar in that we're um, we're getting some wines out of barrel. Uh, doing a, a spring racking and getting some things ready for bottling. So um, there's a sort of a busy, busy stop stop kind of aspect to this this um, point of winemaking. We're frantic for a couple of days, emptying barrels, and then the wines need to rest and settle, and then we rack and return and, and busy again.
0: Oh, well, that sounds exciting, especially getting things into bottling and knowing that there's a partial part of it that's com- completed.
1: Yeah, and I think... There's, for me, there's always a sort of a relief in the safety of bottling. Wines are um, at their most um, uh, uh, high, yeah, fragile um, in that sort of run up towards bottling through um, the end of maturation and, and filtration and sort of preparing them to go into bottle. And then once they're in bottle, you can sort of take a deep breath and, and you know, at that point, it's out of your hands anyway. So it's a nice feeling.
0: Chris, be honest with me, do you actually spend more time in the barrel room or behind the handlebars of your mountain bikes?
1: Uh, look, more time in the barrel room, more time, uh, I guess, uh, on a personal Instagram front uh, talking about mountain bikes. I think I, I find myself um, not really realizing the, the inequity there until people say to me, oh, you've been doing lots of riding recently. And I sort of think, well, yeah, okay, maybe I've, I've been uh, talking too much about that and not talking about what I'm actually doing um, <laughs> for, for sort of the, the normal 40 to 60 hours a week.
0: <laughs> and what do you get more in trouble for? Spending too much time at the winery or, or too much time talking about bikes? <laughs> uh,
1: look, it depends <laughs> Who's, who you're talking to. I think um, probably... Uh, mountain biking is a passion and has done an incredible amount for my um, fitness both mentally and and physically in the last five years and so um, I get a lot of leeway in that sense Um, work is is work and and uh, is always all-consuming so maybe that gets a little bit more um, strife shall we say (laughs)
0: Yeah well I suppose you can say you are exercising like you said and that's so good for your mental and physical and as long as you're not accident prone then that's
1: helpful. (laughs) Uh, No but you know (laughs) I don't want to jinx myself by saying I'm not ever accident prone but um, (laughs) it's a sport that has its extremes of course.
0: Definitely does. Um, So Lark Hill Stories is a unique one. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of how the winery came to be and also just your position within it?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, Lark Hill was established by my parents um, in the 70s. And I think one of the things that we in Australia tend to forget or is easy to forget now is that um, the incredible shift in the winemaking um, style and quality and um, diversity in the last sort of 40 years. So um, my folks had this um, pretty classic Canberra story uh, in terms of being um, academics within Canberra. My mum's um, previously a research statistician and my dad was an optical physics researcher. Um, and they had great careers um, working within academia in Canberra. Um, and in in a personal front, a, a passion for um, the kind of the classics of European wine, um, German Rezings and White and Red Burgundy in particular, um, and, of course, in the, in the sort of the mid, mid to late 70s, um, those wines were not widely available in Australia. Um, and we made, we as in Australia made a lot of um, fortified wine, a lot of sweet wine and a lot of um, pretty low quality wine and mostly from warm climate regions. So they had this sort of idea bubbling away in the back of their minds that um, they could pick up this hobby potentially, and and make wines of the style that they liked um, and they would be totally different to what they were able to to buy um, or or was being commonly made in Australia. So that that all came to fruition in that um, there's a a drive from Canberra to the south coast that they were doing fairly regularly and going past a little spit of land um, on the escarpment at the southern end of Lake George. And um, in about 1976, they took the plunge and bought this block, which had um, uh, essentially nothing on it. It was um, ex-sheep grazing country, um, very, very uh, high altitude, about 860 metres above um, sea level, um, a a pretty cold end of the the Canberra district um, and no trees on it. And um, I think these days, you know, what, The the winery has become very much a a full-time business. It's a commercial proposition, obviously, but at that point it was a a hobby for them and they planted um, vines and trees. There wasn't a tree on the block um, and they planted um, windbreaks and they did a lot to kind of regenerate um, this very much run down and and, um, neglected um, parcel of land and try and sort of bring it back to Um, something that was uh, a a bit of a shadow or a reflection of its terroir and um, its history in terms of native bush and and, um, soil and all of that. Um, So they sort of started this winery business um, really as a hobby thing. And, you know, I'm told the first vintage in 81 was – It was essentially a vintage in buckets and not very good. (laughs) Um, But we all start there in some way, shape or form. Um, And they refined that process. And and by the end of the 80s, they'd retired out of um, their actual careers and decided to take this thing full time. So um, that's sort of where Lark Hill started. And I grew up in that environment with parents who were grape growers and winemakers and Aussie farmers and um, scientists and treated everything with the same aspect of um, experimentation and um, scientific um, rigor in terms of, of how they went about making the wines and how they tried to control for variables and observe changes. And so um I came into the business uh, sort of towards the end of my high school career and and then started full-time when I finished high school, um, making wine with people who'd spent an awful lot of time working with um, just their home vineyard and also buying fruit around the district and really getting a feel for um, uh, what works and what doesn't work within our tewa and uh, how those wines sort of evolved through winemaking and, and cellaring and maturation and, and all of that. So um, I find, I feel very, very fortunate in that um, I got a real um, step up into my career of winemaking in that I really didn't have to um, sort of throw myself on the rocks of failing and failing and failing to work out um, what works within our, within our district um, and with our vineyards and I was able to sort of really um, borrow that accumulated knowledge and, and move it forward. So um, I, I do feel very fortunate in that sense. Um, the, the winery in the late 90s, early 2000s um, had reached not a point of stagnation but a point of um, natural balance in terms of what we were growing and doing. Um, but of course, the, the wine market is, is not a, a stable market. People's tastes change and trends develop. Um, and the other reality that we have to face is that climates change pretty dramatically too. Um, and so, one of the things that um, I sort of um, really pushed for and, and we moved forward was um, initially a move to, to formalise um, the sort of the sustainable agriculture concept that they'd had from the start into certified organic farming. Uh, and then start looking at um, alternate varieties or alternate is the, sort of the, the, the air quotes term for varieties that sit without the norm of what is grown. And, and most of those varieties that sit within the norm in Australia are franco derived varieties because of essentially how Australian viticulture was started um, in the 1830s with some of the introductions with um, James Busby. Um, so a lot of those varieties um, that we were growing, we were growing Riesling and Chardonnay and Pinot. Um, fabulous varieties, but in 2000 to 2005, selling Chardonnay became significantly more difficult. Riesling um, was never a big volume seller, And so we started looking at um, other varieties to kind of experiment and play with and take the scope of Lark Hill beyond, beyond that sort of core of, of three um, quite old world varieties into um, an exploration of what else Canberra can do um, as a great grain and winemaking region.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, I think that um, it seems that your your parents, I mean, they've obviously had a big impact on your approach, but they seem to have had that real holistic uh, approach, that kind of regeneration from the get-go. Um maybe run us through a little bit about um, biodynamics because it really is the forefront of kind of your philosophies. And um, can you give us a little intro into biodynamics and then why the start of that conversion? I think it was in 2003 that you started moving into that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, biodynamics is one of these kind of um, tricky, touchy subjects, I think, for a lot of people. And and part of it is that I think it's highly personalised. Um, so, uh, in 2002, we went to a symposium on biodynamics um, in Beechworth um, and there were some pretty amazing people there, Nicola Jolly, and it was um, really co-hosted by um, Julian Castagna. Um, but more than the, the winemaking side of it, there were um, citrus farmers and dairy farmers and um, people from many farming walks of life who were there to sort of talk about biodynamics as a um, a process where you sort of had to switch your brain off and trust trust the 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 kind of the lower intervention um, aspect of of the agriculture and see the results for yourself. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, the wines were very interesting, but more compelling was the fresh produce that you know the, the cheeses and the the meat and the and all the, the veggies and all of the, the aspect of that and the people growing them were really compelling and really appreciable to sort of see a, a marked difference from produce at that time. Um and in terms of that conversation between um, moving from a sustainable focus, we always referred to ourselves as environmentally friendly um, to certified organic. There was this concept of, well, we could just go the whole hog and, and try biodynamics as well. And so um, that's what we started in 2003. And I had this absolute light bulb moment for me. I was sitting outside my first, um study after school was I went and did biochemistry at ANU and I was sitting there in a in a plant biology lecture um and it was actually a really interesting lecture and then lab where we looked at symbiosis between um plants and fungi and what we did was we we got a um there was some particular uh, plant that that has larger cells that are much more easy to observe on a microscope. Um, And we um, set about cutting up and um, sliding up those cells and looking at them under the microscope and trying to look for um, mycorrhizal fungi, which is um, kind of the the backbone of soil fungi. And what it does is um, it punches a hole through the cell wall, which is a, a firm wall, and then inside the cell wall of the plant is a membrane so it's like a, a soft um, bag that holds all the all the little organisms or all, all the organelles inside the cell um, and across that membrane it swaps nutrients for sugar um, and the, the plants make sugar symbiosis. Uh, sorry um, photosynthesis but they often struggle to get enough nutrients particularly in Australia enough phosphorus and these fungi were, doing exactly that, and we saw it on the slide. And about two days before that, I'd been reading um, an interpretation of Steiner's work with regards to PREP 500, which is the um, preparation that basically adds back in mycorrhizal fungi to soil. And I had this moment of, you know, biodynamics up to that point had been very airy, um, very um, up in the sky concepts, lots of cosmic forces, lots of, stuff that just didn't resonate with me from a scientific um, evidence-based perspective, and then sitting in this lab, looking at it under a slide and going, oh, okay, I can see exactly what is happening here. I can see why I can understand that, um, you know, this process makes perfect sense and is entirely demonstratable. Um, And so I think that's what really set my path with biodynamics is that, um, So biodynamics was started in, or or kind of the concept was founded by Rudolf Steiner, of the the Steiner School um, fame in the 1920s. Um, And it was kind of his swan song. He was in the last couple of years of his life, um, and he was asked to to kind of try and provide a little bit of guidance for agriculture in the sphere of a world that was sort of post-Industrial Revolution, post-World War I, um, had access to more mechanisation, had access to more um, sprays and agrochemicals um, and synthetic fertilisers, and yet declining production and dec- declining quality of production. And so Steiner kind of um, had a philosophical background and um, he took that and what he could glean from um, older agricultural practices and put together a bunch of lectures that he referred to, uh, grouped together as biodynamics. Um, and, um, a lot of those wrap up really, really great, um, knowledge that's just been distilled down from generations of farming, things like fallowing, um, things like compost, um, things like manure usage and, and how manure needs to be treated before it's and compost needs to be treated before it's, return to the soil so that you don't um, have issues with um, weed reinfestation, things like that. Um, basic stuff like really basic farming ideals. And then between you and me, Steiner filled in all the gaps that that weren't understood. And don't forget this is more than 100 years ago. Filled in all the gaps that he didn't understand with philosophy. Um, and so this is, I, I believe, where we get cosmic forces and um, – uh, the, you know, the, the ideas around sort of crystalline memories and so on and things like that. And I think in a modern context, 100 years later, all the stuff, the, the farming knowledge that had been distilled stands up. You know, um, uh, fungi still do their thing. And even though we can now observe and understand them, the basis of of how they do their thing is exactly the same. And so those those concepts flow through and are really easy to apply and observe in modern grape growing. Um, I don't really gel so much with the, the more um, philosophical background to it in terms of um, some of those sort of inexplicable concepts in that I think a lot of what he was struggling to reach for has now been better understood with better research, um, uh, better observational concepts, um, the ability to actually kind of scientifically explain what was at that point, just one step out of reach. So um, my take on biodynamics is is fairly pragmatic. Um, it's probably not as um, pure in air quotes as as some people I'm so, sure some people see um, where we take biodynamics to be a little bit too, um, too back towards the mainstream. But um, for me, biodynamics is a tool for expressing terroir um, and expressing quality of the grapes. And so um, in that sense, I'll happily pare away stuff that, that doesn't resonate with me and use the things that are a positive tool for our vineyard and our wines. And so, biodynamics for, for us is is about um, sustainability. Obviously, that you know, in theory, grapevines and in practice, grapevines will live longer than um, than I will. Um, and our farm is is um, on very very odd soil. Um, it's been there for a long time, and if it's looked after, it will be productive for many 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 generations beyond. Um, the ones that I can think of. So um, in that sense, biodynamics is a a way to to, um, encompass that regenerative and um, renewable and sustainable aspect um, in terms of um, improving soil and returning uh, micro and macronutrients to the soil. um, And also thinking sustainably about how much crop we take, not, not going for lots and lots of grapes quickly, but happily, smaller yields smaller crops and being able to do that long-term. And the other thing is it's about um, honesty to terroir. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about terroir in the wine industry. Um, it's a term that's absolutely beaten to death um, and it's, <laughs> for better or worse, um, but it's very, it's, it's a very evocative, emotional um, concept. And I think um, if you're trying to express, you um, a sense of place in a wine, you're trying to sort of encapsulate everything that makes that vineyard unique and interesting and the wines therefore unique and interesting, then biodynamics is a way to kind of to um, set some structure around that and say, you know, we're not adding fertiliser. So um, the nutrients that go into making the grapes are from that soil, not from another farm or from a factory and we're not using yeast that's cultured in a in a lab to to create a particular spectrum of aromas we're making yeast that has evolved in that vineyard so um, that yeast becomes then a a reflection of its of its place Um, and we're not adjusting acid or uh, manipulating the juice to, to sort of fit an ideal what we're doing is taking what the vineyard delivers and making that into a wine that is a product of that, so um, I like I like that concept that that Biodynamics is a tool along the path of saying here is exactly what the vineyard delivers, um, but at the end of the day, I will temper that with saying it still has to be delicious, and it still has to be clean. I don't like um, I don't like the fallacy, or I believe there's a fallacy in making wines that are. Um, uh, have microbial issues and um, spoilage issues um, and oxidative issues that um, reduce how much of the vineyard you see, uh, because I think in that sense you've lost terroir and it becomes more about um, uh, sort of a dogmatic approach to here is everything that the vineyard delivers, including the faults, because at the end of the day, you know, the faults are... Uh, um, have nothing to do with vintage conditions and, and vineyard conditions and everything to do with what happened in the winery after harvesting.
0: Makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I actually, I think it's amazing that you've you, you've had so much thought um, and consideration going into biodynamics and taken what makes sense for you and what makes sense for the region. Um, it's really nice to hear um the parts that you like and what works for you. But you talked a little bit more about alternate varieties and uh, I suppose Gruneweltlin is a big part of that story, which I'm sure that you've told a thousand times. But uh, for those that haven't heard it before, it's a really interesting story, but it's something that's um, popped up now and again. And 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 with your new varieties now, looking at Marsan, Roussan and your Sangiovese, I just think it's a really lovely segue into understanding, like you said, what alternate varieties are working well in Canberra and how they'll work in the future.
1: Hey, look, it all... Started. It started with Gruner, um, but uh, I think Gruner was the was not the question, but the answer to a question that had been um, trundling around in our heads collectively um, from the late '90s. Um, and uh, you know, I, talking about your know, sort of where Larkhill got to at the, at the end of the '90s, Chardonnay was was pretty much um, out of fashion um, there was a pretty strong abc anything but chardonnay movement um Saint blanc was on the rise the the kind of the the, the bastardized um uh cheap obvious um import sauv blanc was was becoming a real thing um and reasoning has always been a bit of a challenge um not always i should say at that point reasoning was a bit of a challenge in canberra um claire reasoning's had you know, incredible success and fame. Um, but for us, um, raising was always a hand, a hand sell and a hard sell. Um, and then, and so we had this kind of concept of we've got two white varieties that are, you know, sell well to their own market. You know, they, they preach to their choir, but um, that's being eroded quite quickly. And we're not engaging with new drinkers, new, new people to our brand. And, um, And so there was this sort of, well, what about another alternate variety? We had a play with Pinot Gris and found it um, pretty lackluster in Canberra. Um, Had a play with Gewurz Tremina and found it similarly pretty lackluster in Canberra. Um, Not sure if that's vineyard or clone or climate, but um, they were not compelling varieties to kind of champion forward and try and make something you know, try and pin a a new direction on. And then we got this visit from Jancis Robinson and um, as people I'm sure know, Jancis is essentially God in the wine world. Um, (laughs) uh, And even me at 18, my 18th, um, sorry, my, my high school leaving present. So um, the school uh, as part of our leaving gave us a book of our choice and I, um, chose for myself Jancis Robinson's world atlas of wine. Of course, yeah, it's precocious I f- wine, went for it at 18. Anyway, so um, I knew who she was, but I really didn't kind of know who she was. Um, and she was in Australia in the in 2002 for a, um, a Pinot conference, and we'd done pretty well in the London International Wine Challenge earlier that year with Pinot um, and uh, she essentially, the, as I understand it, she was surprised that our weren't, wines weren't at this Pinot conference, but it was a, um, a Melbourne organised and, and very much um, uh, Yarra and Mornington centric conference. So obviously um, New South Wales Pinot was not well represented. So she rang us up and said, I'm going to come. I've extended my trip and I'm going to come and see you. Um, I fly in at, I don't know, pick an arbitrary number. But I fly in at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning, pick me up at the airport and essentially put the phone down. Um, and I think my mum took that call and sort of got off and went, I think I'm picking Jancis up from the airport tomorrow morning. <laughs> and, um, and she arrived and walked through the vineyard and chatted to us about wines. And she had this absolute... Um, focus at that point on um, Grunewald Lena. And I think the piece had been developed around um, a decanter article about white um, worldwide um, varieties in terms of cellaring propositions, you know, what each country and to the traditional winemaking region held up as their hero. And so, you know, there was Chardonnay for Burgundy and Riesling and um, anyway, you know, Grunewald Lena for Austria. And so she walked through the vineyard and and, and sen- essentially turned to me and said, You should be growing Grunervelt Lena. And I said, um, Probably unwisely, smartly, I haven't even heard of Grunervelt Lena. And she said, Well, you should fix that. And so I did. Um, <laughs> uh, and honestly, it led me to an absolute dead end. Um, there was no commercially grown Gruner in Australia in 2002, there was no commercially grown vines in nurseries in in terms of um, trying to buy planting material. Um, and what was coming into Australia in terms of imports was pretty limited. But um, one of the wineries that came to that biodynamic symposium was Domain Nikolai Hoff. And they're a very old family biodynamic uh, one run winery in Austria, and they make incredible Grunewald Liener. It just absolutely beautiful, and so it was this lovely little sort of um, uh, sliding doors moment where, um, having sort of been trying and trying and trying and trying, and then there was Domaine Nicolaihof and and talking to them and tasting the wines, and it suddenly started to make a lot more sense. Um, anyway, it it then took two more years um, until things fell into place, and in two thousand and four. I had a phone call from um, a guy in Tassie called Graham Wiltshire and um, he had a small collection of, of um, uh, grapevines in the University of Tass nursery and he was retiring and had to, to get rid of them um, or remove them from the, the nursery. Um, and he rang us up and said, oh, I've got all these grapevines. You want this clone of Pinot? Do you want that clone of Pinot? Um, also, I've got a couple of Grunevelt Lena here if you want those um, and that was the hook. So, um, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife and I caught the ferry down to Tassie, um, collected, uh, the cuttings from these two grapevines, went through quarantine, did the whole lot, came up and brought them back to, to Lark Hill and planted those out. And from those 20 little mother vines, um, we then propagated out the rest of the block, um, uh, that we have now, which is about a thousand close-planted Grüner vines, um, and at the time it didn't feel so wild to be just taking an absolute punt on a variety that had no history in Australia. Um, but it just it we just did the next thing and then the next thing, and we we planted twenty vines and then we um, prepared the rest of the block and cultivated in place from those, and and by 07, we had um, essentially all 1,000 vines planted out. And by 09, we had about 300 kilos of fruit um, from the oldest of the vines. Um, And so in 09, we made the first Gruner in Australia. And it was, as I said, 300 kilos, which is about enough juice to fill, almost fill a 225 litre barrique, the smallest barrel that we had. So it was a real kind of desperate, um, desperate Hail Mary shot to try and get enough wine to to make it in a way that was accessible commercially. In a way that we could sort of actually see the quality of the wine without losing it to oxidation or having to compromise on winemaking style because of the the small quantity. Um, and because of that small volume, um, it was wild fermented in a, a very old French barrique, one that had been used for Chardonnay for about 10 vintages. Um, so a nice neutral barrique. Um, and then allowed I let it um, mature on lees for about um, six months post-ferment and then bottled for spring. Um, and that has essentially educated how we treat Gruner from here on in. And there was a conscious conversation and effort to not make a Gruner that was like a knockoff Savvy Bee or a, a light, dry, crunchy style, but rather make a Gruner that had weight and texture and interest and um, spoke about um, the, the sort of the quality of the variety um, and and try and make it as close to um, some of these, you know, really amazing producers in, in Austria in terms of style. So looking for ripeness and Um, texture in the wine, um, great acidity but richness and something that would just be um, a wine on its own rather than being a sort of a shadow of an established variety that we had experience with. Um, And I have to say, for all of that, the thing that I'm most thankful for was that um, those first few vintages, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, we had so much support from customers from wine bars and restaurants and small retailers and people like um, at that time, Matt Dunn from Aria um, and um, Fabio from Tetsuya is doing things like putting that wine on um, pairing menus and just saying, yep, allocate us however much you can. And we'll just run with it. And I think, um, the support of people like that meant that this crazy experiment actually got up off the ground and ran. Um, and we've just had such a fun ride with, ride with Gruner ever since. So um, that's sort of the Gruner story, I guess, in a in a nutshell. The winemaking is now very much still the same, even though the quantities are bigger, we still make it in exactly the same way as the first year. And it's about um, delivering that style that is consciously um. Uh, stand-alone and, and textural and interesting because I think that's where Gruner shines. Um, the, the Marsan and the Sangiovese story comes, I guess, as the offshoot of um, purchasing a second vineyard in the, in the 2011 vintage. So, um, we had some experience buying fruit from around Canberra for other varieties and then um, I'd been buying Shiraz and a little bit of Yonia from a vineyard run by Brian Martin and owned by the Clonacilla family. And then in 2011, that vineyard came up for sale um, and I jumped at the opportunity to buy it. Um, essentially, I bought it over the phone, which was um, a little rash, but <laughs> it turned out all right. Um, definitely no regrets. Um, uh, but that vineyard, so that vineyard is something, is one that we now call Dark Horse. It's, it's something that we've um, taken from the, um, a a beautiful established vineyard um, that was being, all the fruit was being sold to, um, we now own and use all of that fruit um, and it's uh, under the commercial name Dark Horse Vineyard um, and certified organic and biodynamic as well. One of the joys at takeover of Dark Horse was, um, as I said, I had experience buying Viognier and Shiraz from that vineyard um, and realising that essentially a third of it was planted to Sangiovese And the other third was planted to Marsan and Roussan and Viognier, And I had zero experience with those varieties on their own. Um, Limited experience in drinking and and zero experience in winemaking. So um, Sangiovese has been a variety that has absolutely guided me, um, taken me by the hand and told me to sit down and and sit back and and it will do its thing. And it's an incredible variety in that sense because um, perhaps a little bit like Pinot, um, the full story, it has plenty of tannin and it has acid retention. And so if you set out thinking in the Great Australian way, I'm going to make a nice, big, rich Sangiovese, um, it just <laughs> slaps you around because um, it's. you can easily end up with over-extracted, astringent, um, joyless wines. But if you let the vineyard speak, um, the result, particularly from this one, has been this medium-bodied, mid-weight, perfumed, um, silky, supple drink that just is so smashable or sessionable or whatever beer term you want to impose. But it's so easy to drink um, and so kind of easy to make because um, you can relax and, and be guided by the vineyard. Marsan and Roussan have been much more challenging. Um they're varieties that don't have a strong place within the Australian palate. I think people aren't nearly as familiar with them, um, and particularly Roussanne has always struggled in that site. Um, and so this year, actually, we've been um, removing some of the Roussan and some of the Viognier, the, sort of the lower qu- um, quality clones in that vineyard and leaving the, the core of, of the best performance. Um, and we're replacing them with... Um, three new varieties to us. Um and a couple of them are new to Australia. So we've got um Teraldago, which is a red variety from um the Alto Adige, the northern kind of Austrian Alps area of Italy. Um, and that that red variety uh is a real me um interest. I, I have no idea how it's going to perform, but it's It's ostensibly darkly coloured. The examples I've had have been very darkly coloured. It's drought resistant. It's pretty mildew resistant. It doesn't mind hot summers. Um, It ticks a lot of boxes for um, trying to think constructively about climate adaptability. Um, And I think in an Australian context, um, a medium-bodied but dark coloured red, you know, a real juicy, um, delicious uncomplicated red has a real place um, and something that we can't do with Pinot or Sangiovese, um, so that that appeals. Um, and we're planting two whites, um, Garganega, which is the majority white for Suave. Um, I love Suave, particularly, I guess, the more modern Suaves. Um, so that that's just a, a a real interest factor. And we're planting um, Falangina, which is a variety that my parents love. Um, I have less experience with it, um, but I think, again, a, a citrusy, fresh, um, textured alternate white from Italy um, that will be, I think, a little bit more climate adaptable, certainly more drought and heat-proof than... Um, more delicate French varieties like um, Roussan and Viognier. So, look, we're just, you know, y- you you to experiment and we'll see what happens.
0: Gosh, that sounds so exciting. What I love about um, talking about alternate varieties with you is that the Gruner story is really being proved over time. I remember hearing about Gruner and being excited about that right at the start. And then to this day it's still winning awards and we're still talking about it. It just goes to show your integrity to understanding a variety, um, but also taking some risk and experimentation um, with it as well. So each time that I see that you've added something in, I'm really excited to see what you're going to do with it. Um, and I like that you're you're honest about the the what works and what doesn't over time. So uh, I mean, it, I think Canberra just is going from strength to strength. Um, and I've loved hearing so much more from you today. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I was going to ask, you do say that you're a little bit of a gin fanatic. So if you were going to only drink three alcoholic beverages for the rest of your life, Chris, what would they be and why?
1: Oh, <laughs> oh that's, that's a really hard question. Um, can, can, uh, can this be as bougie a response as, as <laughs> Go for it, possible? go for it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that gets offensive. Okay, so bear with me. Um, yes, I am a gin fanatic. Um, I I like gin martinis um, and actually I didn't get gin martinis until I met. Um, there's a lovely um, olive brand, uh, olive farm um, called Alto. Um, and Westerly, I met Westerly years and years ago and um, and we caught up for a drink at one point and she made a um, olive sorry a gin martini um, with her own olives and olive brine. And that was a real light switch moment for me. I didn't get that drink until then. Um, and so I'd say my drink number one would be the Four Pillars Olive Leaf Gin. That, that to me makes the best um, uh, dirty martini that I have ever had. Um and and just such an interesting collaboration and and, um I really like four pillars anyway, but I just think that's for me is is the the most interesting in that spectrum. Um champagne, because always champagne. So uh it's not the best Blanc de Blanc. Um it's not the most serious, it's not the most considered, I guess, but um, the ruinard Blanc de Blanc.
0: Oh yeah. All day long. For me all,
1: <laughs> yes. Always just that's my desert island wine. You know, I've, I've had, we went, we had the, my wife and I had the privilege of going to, um, to France in uh, late 2019, early 2020. And we went to some incredible houses and we, we got a tour of Tattinger and going through their caves is something that will just melt your brain. But for just everyday Uncomplicated blanc de blanc drinking that ruinart is is pretty hard to go past for me, um, and then the most up myself response of the three has to be, um, <laughs> uh, and we only opened one of these quite recently. We, as I said, we were in in Burgundy and France in late nineteen, and I I was. Lucky enough to get a tour of Domain Favorly. At that point, we were distributed by the same people who distribute Favorly. And they organized this appointment. And it was just if you've ever experienced cellar envy, um, you've like if you've not been to and seen Favorly's winery and underground cellar, you haven't seen how a winery could be if budget was never a question and you could just dream whatever you wanted. It's just an incredible um, cave and, and sight and, and, like, changed everything for me. And then we were given a taste of a Grand Cru out of Barrel, which is the 2018 um, uh Le Trichier's Chambertin which is one of the Jevry Chambertin Grand Cru's. It's the southernmost one, so it's generally riper and richer. Um, and I tasted that in Barrel and just sort of went, oh, my gosh, like, I get where this wine is, this is just unbelievable. And then we had a bottle of that um, about two weeks ago. And it's just, for me, it's, it's, you know, it's not a wine that you could ever drink every day, but if there was, if you're on a desert island and that was all you had to drink for Pinot, then holy smokes, it's, it's just an incredible experience kind of beyond, um, it breaks the mold out of what is just Pinot into a much more, Um, fascinating and evolving and complex and intense and delicious drink. So there you go. Over the top, but fun.
0: No, I love over the top. And I mean, I think, God, what are they, 16th generation now or something like that, the flavour lease. I mean, I actually think that there's some of those magnums floating around perhaps online. So maybe you might have to, um, I mean, I don't want to get you in trouble, but you might have to uh, invest in a a couple of magnums for yourself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah. Because everything's better in Magnums.
0: Correct. (laughs) Chris, it's been so wonderful catching up. I'd really love to continue this conversation again sometime, maybe over a glass or something delicious. But thank you so much for uh, spending your time with us. And uh, I've loved hearing about what you're doing. And hopefully we'll see you down in Canberra soon.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for the chat.
0: This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.